Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on this podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writers Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. I'm I'm laughing because the minute we sat down to record this podcast, I'm in my closet. I record these podcasts in my closet, and there's someone drilling and hammering stuff like on the other side of you know the apartment or condo I live in. So we're we're gonna have to make do. So I apologize for some of the the noise you're hearing in my end. I'll I'll try to mute when I'm not talking, but I, I think it's unavoidable at this point. Uh, okay, let's dive into it. Let's talk about uh, what we've been doing. Actually, before that, it's June 24th, guys. That means Mulan is going to be in theaters just one month from today. Do we actually think that's happening? Oh, man. I think I think it was Brad who said this a moment ago that uh, a push to August sounds very, very likely for this, right? Yeah, I think it doesn't. I, I feel like Disney's probably not going to want to be the first one out of the gate since they pushed Tenet back to the end of July. And with cases rising in a lot of highly populated areas still, I, I feel like it's going to be bad news bears to open a movie like that so soon. Do you think there's any possibility that they just drop this on VOD and, you know, going to Disney Plus in like a matter of weeks? I can't or imagine. It... It's so expensive. It's like absurdly expensive. There's no way that would be. It would make Disney's accountants cry. I know that much. I don't know. I mean, maybe it could be a big loss later to get. I, I'm guessing anybody that was interested in Mulan is already on Disney Plus, but so I don't know. Okay, so let's dive into what we've been doing. Uh, this past week, I finally got a haircut after three months. I went to a local Supercuts, and it was weird. Has anybody here gotten a haircut since the the quarantine began? I haven't my- gone to get a haircut, but my girlfriend gave me a haircut. And it worked, did, out, it worked out pretty well, actually. She did a really, really good job, and it actually felt like I got a legit like haircut that I would have paid for. So now, from now on, actually, I probably won't even pay for a haircut. You know, my my wife did this because she um 
she has a, a place she goes to, Bird's Barbershop in Austin. And it's a really, really great place. It's where I get my hair cut. And they're, you know, uh, appointment only now, only like a handful of people allowed in at a time, uh, staggered masks on all employees, masks on all customers. And uh, she, she said it was a really positive experience. I felt safe. Uh, so I guess, Peter, how does a, how does like a, it's Bird's reputation of being a very specialized, trendy place. So how does it feel like in a non-specialized, trendy haircut place? Um, well, I made an appointment and I showed up there and I was the only one in there. And when I walked in, they did my temperature check with one of those readers. And I had to wear my mask while the haircut was happening. And the the barber is is a what is a female barber called? It's still a barber? Stylist. 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 Stylist also wore a mask. And I think, uh, I think the technical term is a barberella, Peter. <laughs> 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 All right. That's it. Podcast uh, is over. Thanks for coming, guys. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it was it was like the quickest haircut I've ever gotten. And I was just like, you know, it's just it, usually they use like the uh, – what do you call those scissors clippers whatever but i just had them use the uh, the trimmer thing the electronic i don't know the terminology for any of this the electronic one is actually uh, called the clipper i think oh that's called the clipper what is the yeah. scissors called it's called scissors i, just, I guess just scissors uh, right yeah i've always been called a scissor cut so i think you're good yeah so uh I, I was in and out of there pretty quickly uh it didn't feel back to normal at all but i'm i'm glad to have been done away with, with with all this excess hair because for i think i was supposed to get a haircut i have it in my like ca- calendar to reoccur over i forget how many months uh telling me reminding me to get a haircut and i was supposed to get a haircut like the week after we went into lockdown so <laughs> it had gotten really big and uh, i'm glad to now have a haircut and i was afraid to do it at home because we don't have any like real good clippers I, I have some for my to trim my beard but i would not trust that on my hair <laughs> and uh yeah uh so yeah i did that this week it, it turned out fine everything's fine and um i also went back to universal city walk to record a video for ordinary adventures i won't talk much about that but you can check that out uh, we'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But uh, interestingly, while I was there recording this video of CityWalk, is like mall outside of Universal Studios, Hollywood, and they were reopening. And while I was there, I, we ran into two friends, uh, Sabina and Jonathan. Uh, Sabina, who writes for a number of outlets, and uh, and, and yeah. But anyways, uh, we we had this conversation, socially distanced, on with our masks, like you know like 10 feet apart like yelling things back and forth and it occurred to me that this is the first time i've had a conversation with anybody i've known in person like you know not a stranger like a friend in like a hundred days it was the weirdest thing have any of you guys actually had a conversation in person with a friend in the last three months no, just Zoom. That sounds surreal and wonderful. That to, to make a human connection. What a concept. More, more, recent, more recently, um, a couple, uh, f- well, I guess a few friends, and I, um, we've been having outside like social distancing things where we're like, we, um, they have a, uh, a back deck that's big enough that we can sit on it and have enough space between us to actually uh, hang out with each other. So we, over the past couple of weeks, we've done that a few times. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been kind of like, I don't know. It, it has been a lonely time for the last three months. I've done, you know, the FaceTiming, the Zooming and stuff like that. But I didn't know how much I kind of wanted to hang out with people in person until I 
you know, ran into these two at City Walk and was having a conversation. I was like, oh, my God, I miss this so much. Uh, so maybe I'm going to have to arrange something like what Brad did with a, like a deck party or uh, I guess a park party. I don't know. Something like that. Something I, I can do in L.A. Uh, Brad, what have you been up to? Uh, so I recently got uh, an Apple Watch from my girlfriend. Um, yeah, I guess there was some there was a pretty decent sale on them, and she just um, thought it was a good idea to to pick one up, and I uh, was totally surprised by it. And it, it's a cool thing, but man, it's making me feel old because I'm trying to figure out all the stuff that it does, and like linking it with my phone and everything, and just trying to like really maximize its use because I don't necessarily want it to be like you know something that I just use to like look at my messages and check the time a different way. Cause I feel like I'm not using it to full potential then. Um, so I'm in the midst of kind of going through different like things online, looking at tips and tricks and figuring out just the, the way to get the most bang for my buck. Um, I know you have an Apple watch, right, Peter? Yeah, I have an Apple watch. I, I mean, I, I will say that I mostly do use it for notifications and I'm not sure if I said this on this podcast in the past, but the greatest thing about an Apple Watch for me, and this sounds not like a, like a appetizing thing, is that it makes me use my phone less because before when I got a notification on my phone, I would open up the notification and then get sucked into Instagram or Twitter or, or Facebook or something. And now I just look at my watch and I can kind of like go on with my day and not have to like pull up my phone and get sucked into that. Uh, you know the 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 phone space, but uh, I'm not sure what apps I would recommend you use, Brad. There there is an app I use called Waterminder, which tracks uh, my water consumption throughout the day, and it's it, it's very easy. You just like click on it, and you can click how much you've had, and it, it kind of it, it gives you a goal of like completing a certain amount of drinking water throughout the day. Okay, uh, but yeah, that, that's not too exciting, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I definitely have um, surprisingly appreciated the, the the convenience of having like the message notifications and stuff on my watch because you know it's it's a little it seems like it's a little thing, but it really is just better to to hear like it go off and look at my wrist and not have to pick up my phone and deal with that and then just you know go back to whatever I'm doing. Um, and so like it's I I never realized necessarily how much more efficient I guess it would make you know, my day and like communication and stuff like that. And just, you know, getting notifications. But, um, so far I've really liked that. And I'm just, I'm interested to get, dig into it more and figure it out. And plus I, I like that you can, uh, customize what's on the, the face of the watch. So I have mindset so that I can use photos for the background. And so right now my, what I have the watch looking like is the Dick Tracy's watch. <laughs> but you can't do, you can't do like video chat over, over your Apple Watch. Well, well, Dick, well, Dick Tracy couldn't do video chat either, but he could talk to people on the watch, and I can do that. So now I'm Dick Tracy. Oh, are you using that? Uh, what is that? Like, there's like a two way app or something like that. No, it's uh, well. So I don't. I don't know if this is not part of the previous editions, but on but on your watch, if you get a call, you can answer the call on your phone. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Have you tried texting so anybody crazy. back when you like get a text message? Like, there's like ways of responding. Have you tried any of that? Uh, so yeah, it's um yeah I I just figured this out recently actually because I hadn't uh, used it to respond to any messages just to read them but you can when you get a message and you reply to it you can use your like, you can like handwrite the text instead of like trying to text on a keyboard which was pretty convenient. A bunch of quick replies where you can like just it suggests replies usually. I'm sorry about this guys. There's people like drilling into that wall. <laughs> 
hopefully it's not too bad. Uh, but uh, <laughs> okay, let, let's move on to what we've been watching. Your house sounds haunted. I don't know. This yeah, is like Peter. It really sounded like like one of those old uh, tapes you put in like at Halloween. It has like ghost noises, like rattling chains, and people going "Ooh!" It really, really sounds like <laughs> like I'm I'm 12 years old and trick or treating right now. Well, that that that's better than what it sounds like over here. So uh, let's talk about what we've been watching. Uh, this past week, Netflix came out with a new show called "The Floor Is Lava," and this is a reality show where where the floor is lava it's basically this this obstacle course i think it's kind of like all of almost like american ninja warrior meets an escape room where people have to enter this room where the wall like the floor is this red colored water and it's spewing and uh you know squirting and they need to jump from thing to thing it could be like couches it could be like the arc from Raiders of the Lost Ark. It could be whatever. Each each room is themed, and they need, need to, as a team, get to the end point on the other other side of the room. And there's there's objects in the room that can help you, uh, like do certain things. It, it, it's a little bit of a puzzle. It's not just like a endurance challenge, and uh, it's a. Uh, you know, there's different routes with varying uh, degrees of difficulty, and uh, there's just an annoying voiceover. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I generally like this. It, it reminds me kind of of like the old like Legends of the Hidden Temple kind of shows. Uh, the the annoying voiceover can be a little bit much at times. I and I wish like at the beginning of each course they kind of lay out the course and they're like, here's the path that they could take, and here's what this artifact would do and here's you know how they could save time and i i kind of wish that they just jumped into it and like let us see the people exploring and finding out these things themselves and i guess they're going for more of the thing of us knowing more than the characters on screen so we could be like internally yelling being like get the staff on the wall or you know something like that but uh i don't know i i'm kind of enjoying it, it it's kind of disposable uh it's it's not like too exciting, Chris. You, you also saw Floors Lava, right? I did. Uh, my my wife and I watched the whole thing over the weekend, and uh, I I enjoyed it. It's not what you would call uh, peak TV. It's not smart. It's a very silly, stupid show, but it's 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 exactly the type of thing that's like perfect to binge when you don't really want to invest too much in something when you just want a, a fun distraction and it's 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 very fun to watch it's fun to watch these people jump around and try and and, and solve these puzzles and uh i, I really like the way it's edited because uh, they edit it in such a way that when the people fall in the lava we never see them come back out so it's like oh that person clearly died <laughs> it's like they're trying to make you think that person is literally dead and i i appreciated that it also looks really painful at times like there are people who land like really hard on their face and uh i, I imagine it hurt a lot more than they let on and they're you know they're trying to save face and trying to get through the obstacle course but there there are one or two uh maybe more than that falls that look particularly painful but overall i I really dug it and i I hope there's more of it because it's just it's a fun distraction yeah 
I like it. I wish they could increase the puzzle solving a little bit. And I, I think this is all about watching people falling on their faces and butts and like with these ridiculous set pieces. Uh, but it, it is fun. I guess I'd recommend it if you're just like looking for, you know, something to casually watch. Uh, Jacob and Chris, you have both been watching some of the same stuff. So, Jacob, I'm going to throw it over to you. What, what have you been watching this week? I watched one of the new uh, Shudder Originals, a South Korean horror film called Warning Do Not Play. Uh, it is uh, directed by Kim Jin Woon, and it is sort of like a odd companion piece to The Ring in that it's about a haunted film. But it's about a a uh, young filmmaker who's searching for inspiration for a, for a project who comes across a story of a film festival uh, in a screening where uh, it was an infamous film that caused the audience to panic and cause heart attacks. And the film was supposedly made by a ghost is what she's told. So she goes on a quest to find it and she finds it and bad stuff starts happening. And it is often nonsensical in, in the same way a lot of I think Asian horror is where it uh, lets the mystery be a little bit too opaque for its own purposes and never really gives a, gives enough uh, satisfying answers and not like a way it's mysterious, but a way that feels confusing. <laughs> but uh, I will say I found warning not play to also be very creepy and uh, often um, really exciting. And it does some really interesting things in the back half, especially where it starts rotating between uh, footage uh, of the film, uh, which she finds and the events that she's encountering herself. So it's not like essential Asian horror, but it is uh, from my mind, uh, pretty good Asian heart. And if you have shutter, it's like 85 minutes long. Uh, Chris, what do you think about this one? Yeah, I liked it. There's, there's nothing like new here. It's not treading new ground, but uh, it, it delivers exactly what I wanted. I'm, I'm a sucker for cursed object films, you know, like this book is cursed or this movie is cursed. And I, I just, I love stuff like that. And uh, this gave me exactly what I wanted. Um, Again, if you've seen, the ring or, or films like the ring you've pretty much seen what this movie is but the, that doesn't mean it's it's not enjoyable so i enjoyed it for the most part uh speaking of uh horror movies we both watched uh you should have left the new uh blumhouse uh movie from director david kep one of the strangest careers in hollywood he wrote jurassic park spider-man mission impossible but directed uh mordecai and stir of echoes and premium rush just a very strange career he's had and this is the kevin bacon uh movie where kevin bacon plays a um rich guy with a young wife played by amanda seafried and they go to a vacation home uh in the uk and bad stuff starts happening in that house i think the trailer actually gives away too much yeah i will say it leans very heavily on house of leaves without being as smart as house of leaves but main problem here is that i just didn't think this was scary i think kevin bacon's good there's some good story choices here there's some good ideas and even when it's ripping off a really great book, I don't think it's ripping off it in a way that really leans into what made that book, you know, unsettling. I wish uh, You Should Have Left was in any way frightening. Uh, instead, it's totally passable and totally fine. And it's a hard movie you can show somebody who is easily scared and, you know, they, they'll be fine. Uh, Chris, I know you reviewed this for the site, but I think you're, I think you may have been even look, a little kinder than me in your review. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, ultimately, I did not like this. I gave it a negative review. Um, I liked Kevin Bacon's performance. I liked a lot of the uh, the production design. I thought it, you know, it, it's one of those movies where it tries to present all of its horror in in broad daylight, which I really appreciate when films do that because it, it's it's not the norm. But that said, none of the horror is particularly horrifying, and uh, yeah, I was just disappointed by this. Like, it's not a terrible movie. It's just 
kind of blah. Like, and I'm a really big fan of uh, Star of Echo, so I was hoping this reunion would be like uh, akin to that, but it, it's really not at all. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a big disappointment. Yeah, especially for the twenty dollars price tag, since this is a premium VOD title, you know, a theatrical release that pushed here. And you know, like I, I'm happy to pay twenty dollars for a new release if it if it's good. Um, but like in the same way, like I think you can argue that a movie like The King of Staten Island or Trolls World Tour are worth those price tags if you're the family or the audience for that. Uh, but you should have left is not a movie worth twenty dollars. I, I I don't regret spending that money because I had a good time watching it. But heads up, unless you're like a serious horror completionist, um, wait till this one's cheaper or streaming for free. Yeah. Uh, this past week, I watched Lovebirds or The Lovebirds. This is on Netflix. This is the Netflix original. This is from director Michael Showalter, who did The Big Sick, which I think most of us on this podcast loved. I, I really loved that film. And uh, this also saw, uh, stars Camille. And I was, uh, I want to say I was excited to see this because I had heard some not so great things. Uh, this is about a couple who, I guess the big pitch here is it's about a couple who are like on the verge of breaking up. Like they, they are not doing well and they become embroiled, embroidered, broiled, <laughs> broiled in a uh, murder mystery of sorts. And they, they spend, uh, the movie going from one ridiculous thing to another, uh, different circumstances, uh, each more ridiculous than the last, trying to, uh, you know, get out of this mess. And in, you know, and obviously they they probably find a way to like each other <laughs> and uh, find a common common ground uh, throughout this film. I it's it's OK. It's fine. It, it, it's uh, not very good. I It's not something I would, I guess, recommend to anybody. It's not bad, but it's it's definitely not good. There's only a couple, I guess, moments where I laughed in the movie. I just uh, I don't know. I, I, I find it hard to to recommend this. And it's 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 a shame because I like all the people involved in this and I wish I could recommend it. But uh, so I'd say don't watch The Lovebirds on Netflix. And uh, the other thing I watched this week, uh, in addition to st I'm still binge watching Suits on <laughs> USA Network uh, or on Amazon Prime. It's from, uh, it was originally aired on uh, USA Network and I'm on season four and it's really getting good. It, it, I, I am really enjoying Suits, so I, I highly recommend Suits. But uh, the other thing I watched was Undertaker The Last Ride. This is a documentary series that is on WWE Network, which I did not have. But I had heard uh, Jeff Kanata on the Slash Filmcast recommend this. So I actually signed up. Uh, you can actually sign up for a free account of WWE Network and watch the first episode. Otherwise, it's $9.99 a month, which I ended up paying to upgrade just to, to watch this five-episode series. Now, okay, let me pitch this to you guys because I know none of you guys are into pro wrestling. Uh, Jacob has some, somewhat of an interest but uh, nobody here is into pro wrestling. I have not watched. I used to be really into pro wrestling, but I have not watched pro wrestling on a regular basis in probably two decades. So it, it's not like I'm into pro wrestling, but I, I did. I, I was a fan at one time. I, I was more than a fan. I, I ran a pro wrestling website called WrestleNet back in the day. Um, but the this documentary series is, is much like a 34 for 30 series. I, I honestly feel like it's, it's probably a lot like that uh, Michael Jordan documentary that all you guys 
talked about recently, which I, I still have not seen. Um, and this chronicles uh, the last three years of the pro wrestler, The Undertaker. And The Undertaker has been around in wrestling since, uh, I think, 1990. He is one of the biggest legends still working in this business. And this documentary, and he he's one of these guys, I, I know everybody here probably has... Even even if you have not watched pro wrestling, you probably know who the Undertaker is. He comes; he's a character. He he comes out uh, to uh, <laughs> some dark music uh, with the lights out. He, he like has the the hat and the the trench coat and everything. Like he he's a character, and he's one of these old guards of pro wrestling. Where back in the day in pro wrestling, when you had a character and you had a gimmick that is how you operated in and out of the ring. And what I mean by that is, I mean, if you were fighting, if you had a feud with someone, you would never be seen like, you know, on the road at a diner eating with that person. You would, you'd never do an interview out of character. Uh, Nowadays, pro wrestling is kind of treated as entertainment and the people that are in pro wrestling, uh, you know, have their onstage persona, but also offstage, they, you know, have their, offstage persona like which is themselves and there's been it's it's kind of treated much in the same way of actors but with the undertaker it's interesting because he's been around for what 30 years now and he is never as far as i know i don't think he's ever given an interview out of character since he started this undertaker persona and he he's carried this with him his entire life this is the first time he's ever kind of let people in and see his personal life and what this documentary series is about. And I think this would, is what would interest you guys is it's about him coming to grips with his body is unca is incapable of handling what a regular wrestling routine. And uh, he, he's thinking about possibly hanging up, uh, you know, possibly retiring, but he can't let himself do it. So it's, it's dealing a lot with, uh, his legacy. It's dealing a lot with, um, like when, when is the perfect, what is the perfect closure? What is the perfect ending? Uh, when do you walk away? When, when does, uh, you know, it, 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 it's it's really interesting and it's really sad because it's it it, it, it seems like he is unable to walk away. It, it becomes episodic at, at one point uh, with him kind of having this constant cycle of looking for the perfect closure and the perfect ending for him to like step out and leave it leave it at that. Um, but I don't know. This is also unprecedented because WWE doesn't usually allow you to see kind of this kind of access and the real stuff that's happening in and out of the ring. It like one of the things I love about pro wrestling is that you kind of have these layers. You have the storyline, you have the truth behind the moments, you have the real life that's going on behind, you know, backstage that's influencing everything. Um, it's, I don't know. It, it, it's really fascinating to see those layers and to understand uh, while watching this, like what, what is actually going on be, behind these moments and, the disappointment of some, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's hard to really give a full picture of this, but it, it is, it is really fascinating. And I, I highly recommend this to anybody 
even if you don't like wrestling, this even if you don't like sports, I'm not even a sports person, and and seeing this is is it's really about one guy's trying to come to grips with you know failure, legacy, redemption, and uh, you know closure, and uh, it's it's very cinematic. It's it feels unlike you know it doesn't feel i guess it feels much like you know like the 30 for 30 things where it's just really well produced really well edited and uh yeah it, i think there's five episodes it's on wwe network i also learned that undertaker lives in austin texas uh not not too far from from our own jacob jacob did you know that he lived in texas or in in austin no, but no, the rest of Sting lives in Waxahachie, Texas, which is like ultra religious backwoods community near Dallas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other thing about Undertaker, uh, his real name is Mark Calloway, is he, he does seem kind of like a Texas, uh, you know, like I, I, I go I go hunting and he wears shirts that say stuff about God. And uh, I don't know. He, he is a Texas guy. Uh, but there's a lot more to him than uh, I, I think that stereotypical portrayal that you can imagine. Um, but I don't know. Jacob, I think you would really enjoy this series. So I, I highly recommend you check it out if you can. At least watch that first episode. Like all you need to do is sign up for a WWE Network account, which is free. And you can watch that first episode. I think I'm going to have to check this out because, as I said before in this podcast, I I have so many friends who are deep in the wrestling and they're smart people and they have like, analytical thoughts about the about it and the way they read into it and i know our own occasional contributor contributor uh, uh has written at length about wrestling as an art form and i can i can never get into it i, I tried a few times in over the years and I, I can't but there is no industry like this no business like this and the stories that come out of it are so specific and strange that i have a i have a fascination in the stories so i'll have to check this out yeah the, the other one last thing i wanted to say about this is it, it's weird because this all leads up to WrestleMania this year, which happened after the coronavirus pandemic kind of closed down everything. And like this basically leads up to the the match where it does he or doesn't he? Is this going to be his last match in wrestling? And it's it's so I'm not sure if it's funny or sad, if if it's anticlimactic or perfect, because this match, because of how things were you know wrestlemania got shut down there was no crowds there they had the film in an empty arena and they they were able to kind of turn his match into this like match set in the graveyard so i'm not sure if like that's the perfect uh ending for the undertaker uh it, it was interesting because they were able to because of that they were able to shoot the match like it was a movie with cuts and you know like you know wrestling is 99.99999% of the time takes place in the middle of a ring and is shot in real time. But here they were actually able to film it like a movie and it was cinematic and it was, I guess, kind of like a movie like ending. So maybe it isn't anticlimactic. Maybe it's perfect for a persona that's been like, so, you know, much like a, a character from a horror movie, I guess. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Check it out. Uh, that is undertaker. The last ride um, on WWE network. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched Brahms The Boy 2, the sequel to The Boy. Uh, and I liked the first boy just fine. I think it's a totally adequate one of those. And full disclosure, I was sent a Blu-ray copy of this. And they 
massive gift package with a giant fluffy blanket that says the boy two on it, a a giant notebook that says the boy two on it, a bunch of popcorn and candy and uh like very fancy looking um like photo cards of scenes from the, scenes from the film. So I, so full disclosure, I was sent to this movie along with a whole bunch of things, and I own a blanket that says the boy two on it. Or sorry, it says the Brahms, the boy two coming to DVD and Blu-ray soon on it. <laughs> it's in big letters. Uh it's a very comfortable blanket. Uh, so maybe that, in fact, in my opinion, this movie was torn apart by critics, uh, including our own earlier this year. Uh, I thought it was fine. It is deeply strange. It is a deeply strange inversion of the first film, which was a, which I won't spoil here. Uh, but you may remember that was the one about a woman who's asked to babysit a doll, but was uh, in this like decrepit old English manner, but there's more than meets the eye. And this is the sequel. And it really upends the uh brahms mythology <laughs> i'll say uh, uh brahms the doll is back and there's more to the story than you thought there was and uh it is it is certainly a choice uh chris uh, you reviewed this for us right i did it's bad it's, it's not <laughs> a good movie uh i like you i thought the first film was fine and then this one pretty much takes everything that made the first film interesting and just like throws it in the toilet and is like, all right, here's this other stuff. And boy, did I not care for it. Chris, it seems like it was particularly heartbreaking for you too. Cause you seem to really like hit your wagon to the Brahms star. You were like all of it. You were like, you made Brahms the boy too, part of your brand for a while. I know. Yeah. Well, let's, <laughs> I just, I, you know, I'm drawn toward, towards garbage. I just can't help it. <laughs> Well, I will mildly go to bat for Brahms Boy 2. I think it is fine. I think it's I think it's an adequate horror sequel in a landscape where horror sequels are often the same thing over and over again. At least Brahms Boy 2 is going for it. And even if going for it in a way that does not work for you at all as it did for Chris. I uh I I'm not gonna go out here and say buy the Blu-ray, but I will say when it's streaming for free, maybe put it on. See if it appeals to you. Uh, it's also like 79 minutes long with the longest end credits <laughs> to try to beef it up to a feature-length film. Uh, so it, is, it does not require much of your time. That is a Brahms, The Boy 2. I also uh, rented Becky from Amazon. This is, I think I rented it for four ninety nine, five ninety nine. dollars This is a movie that, uh, it's one where uh, Kevin James, comedy star Kevin James, King of Queens himself, uh, plays a murderous neo-Nazi criminal who escaped from prison along with his gang and are terrorizing a family led by Joel McHale uh, for reasons I will leave unspecified here. And it's up to Becky, the titular character played by Lulu Wilson, to uh, save everybody else and kill all the Nazi bastards dead. Uh, this is a weird movie because it really tries to dwell on the consequences of violence, pain, and trauma and tries to be like tries to be like Green Room where it's like, uses you know ordinary folks versus nazis as a story of of cycles of trauma and cycles of damage and how we do or do not pull ourselves out of tailspins when we make bad choices uh but unlike green room which manages to balance being a really intense thriller with those messages uh becky is way too like in love with his own violence to let that message stand it's very much two movies both of which kind of sort of work it is this drama about what i just mentioned and there's also a home alone riff where a young girl armed with all of her home homemade weapons dispatches these guys guys in the most violent ways possible and i'm not gonna lie i'm, I'm all for movies where white supremacists get massacred because fuck those guys uh and this movie's gore is really effective it's well shot it is extremely entertaining 
But then when these two tones collide and they do frequently, it's contradictory in a way where I'm like, okay, you're asking me to enjoy this violence, and I am, but you're also asking me uh, to accept that violence is bad and I should feel bad about murder, which I do feel bad about murder. Murder is not good <laughs> in real life. So why are you asking me to feel bad about enjoying this movie that you asked me to enjoy in the previous scene? Uh, did anyone else hear see Becky? I cannot remember if anyone else has talked about it yet. All right. I think that was a no. Uh, this movie is too bizarre in that way to be a total write-off. I think it's too well-made. I think directors Jonathan Milo and Carrie um, Mernon uh, give it a lot of style. It has a really great score, surprisingly, and uh, the acting is good. I mean, Joel McHale and Kevin James, uh, two comedy actors, doing really solid work here where they don't stand out. Like Kevin James, I'm not going to say Oscar winner Kevin James, but I am going to say does not stand out in a bad way at all and blends into the tone of the film quite well, Kevin James. Uh, so that's Becky. It's available for rent right now. If what I said sounds interesting, you should definitely check it out. I, I wish it had more tonal balance. Uh, but it, it is, it's an interesting thing, and I, I'm glad I watched it. Uh, things I'm glad, things I'm not glad I watched. Uh, the Ascent, a uh, demonic possession horror film from director Perry Reginald Teo. Uh, it tries to sort of be like a brand new take on The Exorcist with a big old twist that uh, you see coming 20 minutes into the movie. Uh, I was not impressed. It's streaming for free on Amazon. Probably skip The Ascent, it's, even if you're like me and are a sucker for religious horror. Just no, it, it's it's pretty boring. And I say that even though it features some pretty gnarly practical monsters. And, I, and when when you have gooey practical monsters, and I can't give a movie recommendation. There's a problem here. Uh, and finally, I've been binge watched along with my wife uh, all of season one of What We Do in the Shadows uh, in two sittings. And I'm a, I'm on record as a big fan of the movie, and I was hesitant because I felt like you know that movie is such a special gem that I didn't know if the show could really capture it. And for the most part, it does. This show is really funny, and it really develops its own voice a few episodes in, where it's clearly in the same world as the movie, uh, but finds its footing and does not and does not feel like content to like re- retrack all the same steps. It is doing its own thing, and uh, it's 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 just really funny. It's it's such a funny show. Of course, you don't know it's about vampires living in an apartment in Staten Island. They're roommates, or sorry, living in an old house in Staten Island with their roommates, and they are just trying to. Uh, Go about their vampire ways in a in a in a twenty first century world where they haven't never quite adjusted to, and which might be most of uh, surprisingly is the Sopranos, which seems like a really weird comparison. Uh, but Sopranos is about you know mobsters who are looking back on the glory days, uh, like of, of their fathers when there was so much more that they they could do, and and their, their jobs seem so much more shiny and. Like people, they had more respect and power, and now they're in a modern age where they're out of place and they they don't have what they once had. And what we do the shadows is in many ways also on the same trajectory, where except it's vampires who all they have is their glory days because in the year twenty twenty or twenty nineteen for season one, they just don't have um, the same allure they once had, and they're struggling to adjust to a world that has moved past them. Uh, but does it well being very, very funny. Uh, we'll do the shadows. Uh, see, first two seasons streaming on Hulu right now. I plan to begin season two very soon. It is very, very good. Okay, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched, uh, I've watched a bunch of stuff actually for, for once. I usually don't have this many things, but uh, I will try to be brief. But I watched, uh, I'll be gone in the dark, which is the new. Uh, it's not out yet. I think it comes out this weekend. It's the upcoming HBO documentary based on the book of the same name. Um, the book was written by 
Michelle McNamara, who was Patton Oswalt's wife, and and she died suddenly of an accidental drug overdose while she was writing the book, and it was finished by um, two other researchers. Uh, it's it's about the the Golden State Killer, who was uh, the serial killer and rapist who was very active in California in the, in the late seventies, early eighties, and. Uh, not too long after the book came out, they actually finally arrested him, and it turned out he was um, an ex-police officer. And uh, he uh, just recently he he agreed to plead guilty in order to avoid the death penalty. Um, anyway, uh, this is very good, and uh, I wrote the review of it. The review is on Slashville.com. And what I really liked about this is that it it doesn't adhere to uh, true crime docuseries trends. You know, I, I watch a lot of true crime docuseries. I, I like them, but more often than not, they, they're really primarily focused on, uh, you know, the killer and his crimes and, uh, you know, his, the killer's psychology and, you know, all that, all that stuff that gets into the killer's psyche basically. And this is the complete opposite where it's more about um, the victims and, you know, the people who survived. And it's also really about, Michelle McNamara too. It's more like a story about her and her life and how she started writing the book. And it, it made me oddly emotional, which is something, you know, I don't usually get while watching true crime because it really hammers home how just tragic it is that, you know, she was writing this really good book and she just died while writing it. And she, you know, she left her husband behind, she left her, her daughter behind. And, and the way they, they approach her life and her death is really surprisingly powerful so if you're like hesitant to watch true crime if you're like squeamish about it i would say this is like true crime for people who don't love true crime just because it, it's a it has a lot more on its mind than just the the crimes in question uh what else i watched a league of their own because that recently got a 4k blu-ray and man i forgot how great this movie is i, I honestly would go as far as to say as i think this is kind of like a perfect movie. I can't think of anything I, I have qualms with about this movie. It's just so funny. And the cast is, is so great across the board, not just, you know, Gina Davis and Tom Hanks, but even like Madonna is, is really good in this movie. And it's, it's, it's great. It made me long for movies like this, which I don't think they really make anymore. Like I can't imagine a movie like this being made today because it would have to be, something that launches like a franchise or something like that instead of just like the standalone movie about female ballplayers during world war ii so i i you know i'm not breaking new ground here by saying a league of their own is good but if you haven't watched it in a while uh revisit it because it's it's so much better than i even remembered it being uh and then finally i uh for the the upcoming episode of 21st century spielberg i rewatched. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and the Adventures of Tintin. Um, I've said in the past that I think Crystal Skull is better than a lot of people give it credit for. However, even though I still believe that during this rewatch, I noticed a lot more <laughs> problems with it than I, I remember. So I still think it's not quite the abomination that some people act like it is, but it has a lot of problems. And really those problems are more on a script level. And that's just because it, it had, you know, so many different scripts and it, it, it ended up plucking a bunch of stuff from uh, Frank Darabont's unused script and then blended it with stuff that David Coop wrote. And it just doesn't work like it should. 
uh on the upper other side of the coin tintin is great man i i've i've seen it before but rewatching it now and maybe because i watched it back to back with crystal skull but it made me realize how much fun that movie is that's that's a better indiana jones movie than indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull and the animation is great uh, you know a lot of times when i think of that motion capture animation animation i think of the stuff that robert zemeckis did you know like beowulf and the polar express and that stuff looks awful it's just especially polar express which i think is one of the the ugliest movies ever made but the animation here works it works really well and that's because it's not trying to be realistic it's it it does this interesting blend where the characters move and behave like real people like they have physical weight but all their faces are caricatures, you know, drawing on, on this, the style of the, the Tintin comics and that movie, because it's animated, it sort of let Spielberg go wild. And as a result, it's, it's like one big action set piece after another. And, you know, would it be more exciting if it were live action? Maybe, but it, I don't know. It just looks so much fun. And, uh, I, I, I really, really loved rewatching Tintin and that's on um, Amazon prime right now. Crystal skull is on Netflix. If, if you want to rewatch <laughs> them because you're a fan of my podcast and you want to get caught up before I do record the new episode. Yeah. I- I'm with you, Chris. I don't think crystal skull is as bad as people say it is. It's not good. I'm kind of bummed that Spielberg is not going to be making this, this next Indiana Jones movie because I felt like that was going to be his redemption. Or it was going to be set up as a redemption of sorts. But yeah, I, yeah, I'm right there with you. I kind of wanted him like to go out on Indiana Jones on a high note, and that's just not going to happen now. You know, I like James Mangold, but I still just have such a weird. I just it just seems weird to have an Indiana Jones movie without Steven Spielberg directing it. But that's, yeah, that's the way it goes, I guess. Yeah, especially with Ford. Um, ben, what have you been watching? Uh, the only thing of note that I've been watching is a documentary that's on Hulu right now. It's called The Painter and the Thief, and it was directed by, what is his name? Uh, Benjamin Ree, who as a filmmaker I've never heard of before. Um, this movie played at Sundance this year, and it actually won the World Cinema Documentary Special Jury Award for Creative Storytelling. So uh, I, it's tough to even really talk about this movie without spoiling it because I didn't really know anything about it before I watched it, except for just the very, you know, most vague plot summary, which is what I'll try to keep it to here. I will say I recommend watching the movie. Uh, I found it to be super fascinating and just one of those types of movies that I couldn't watch passively. I, I had, I found myself, um, scanning the frame constantly just looking at characters faces to uh, try to interpret their facial responses to stimuli and, and things like that and and comments back and forth and try to read into the relationships that are being formed on screen here so the the basic pitch of this movie is um this uh, it's about this this painter who uh, her two paintings that she did in a in an art gallery were stolen and she ends up confronting the thief one of the people one of the two people who who stole her artwork and asks him uh at the end of their conversation hey do you mind if i if we meet again so i can paint your portrait i'm i'm just sort of interested in doing this and he says yes and so they the movie basically follows these two people as they they have this weird relationship where they sort of dance around each other it's almost like they're circling each other 
uh, warily and they're always sort of reading each other and, and trying to, to get a read on the other one and, and figure out, you know, is this person real? What's going on here? Is this, um, you know, are these uh, conversations that we're having, are they, you know, in service of uh, some, some larger thing? Or is this just a genuine friendship that's building between these people? Um, so it's, it's a really, really fascinating movie. And I don't want to really get into, you know, ex- what exactly happens, because that's sort of like the, the joy of the movie is just uh, discovering how it all plays out. But um, I, I just found it really, really compelling. It's a movie that explores ideas about you know, forgiveness and addiction and destructive tendencies. And the movie is called The Painter and the Thief. And that sort of sets up this, this dichotomy of like, the painter is good and the thief is bad, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. And the film doesn't let the artist fully off the hook for some of her shortcomings uh, as well. Um, even though the thief obviously has some problems of his own and then the movie gets into that as well. So uh, yeah, it's called The Painter and the Thief. It's on Hulu right now. I would recommend it. It's, it's, um, it's a tough movie to talk about uh, without spoiling it, but I think uh, it's the type of movie that once you watch it, you're going to immediately pull up Google and just try to find out as much as you can about what the hell you just saw. Okay. uh, Brad, what have you been watching? Not a lot, but I did take the time, excuse me, uh, to watch crawl, uh, which is available on Amazon prime. I think it's also available on Hulu. If I remember correctly, um, but this is a movie that is uh, set in the middle of a hurricane. Uh, Kaya Scodelario plays a uh, college swimmer who uh, goes to check on her dad uh, right before a big hurricane is about to hit their area. And he's not answering his phone and uh, they can't get a hold of him. And so he finds him. Uh, she finds him in this condo that he was fixing up and uh, he's injured in basically like the um in the, within the foundation uh of the house and come to find out there are many alligators in the area well one of them has attacked him and as the area begins flooding the alligators become uh more aggressive and they're basically trapped in this house trying to get out and evade them and uh this is such a fun movie uh, i had a blast watching this it is j- just a great um suspenseful fun fun monster movie um i do wish the alligators looked a little bit better as far as the visual effects are concerned because there's times where uh they look kind of fake um i don't know if it's just because of the the lighting and the way that they they were rendered but uh otherwise it's just it's suspenseful and tense the whole way through uh they get a surprising amount of mileage of being in the same areas and just trying to evade the alligators and uh, yeah, the way it unfolds is is really great. And it's a it's a quick watch. It's only around an hour and a half long, and so yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with this movie. Cool. What 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 else have you been watching? And then I also watched the first three episodes of Disney Plus's new documentary series, Into the Unknown: Making Frozen Two. Uh, Disney Plus made uh, the first three episodes available uh, for us to review before the series comes out on June 26th. Uh, Unlike The Mandalorian, all six of the episodes will be released at once so that you can uh, binge it on Friday rather than releasing it week to week. And also unlike The Mandalorian, uh, this series doesn't actually focus on a different aspect of production throughout each episode. Instead, 
uh, it unfolds like a longer narrative because the documentary begins uh, when directors uh, Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck have 11 months until the movie premieres and it follows their path of production towards getting the movie finished. And this is one of the most in-depth looks at the making of an animated movie that I've ever seen. Uh, most of the time, you know, featurettes that come out promoting the movie show quick behind-the-scenes footage, show the actors talking about their characters, recording lines, laughing, having a good time. This really digs into the nitty-gritty of what it's like to work on a large-scale animated movie like this. Uh, it talks to the animators and shows them actually working at their stations and seeing uh, how they use uh, different methods of getting the animation of characters just right, showing the little subtle changes they're asked to make in meetings where they're constantly checking in with the directors. Um, it follows uh, the path of this one sequence in the movie that they're having a lot of trouble with, figuring out how to make it work and fit into the story and actually make sense and latch get viewers to latch on emotionally. It's the show yourself uh, song sequence with Elsa and you get to see them ha uh, they having meetings and discussing what's working, what isn't. They talk about having uh, screenings every three months with a lot of the other Disney filmmakers where they offer just raw, honest notes about what in the movie isn't working for them and what they don't understand, what's what's confusing. And just seeing them you know, work on this movie and work through all these problems and figure it out is uh, so fascinating. It's um, For some people, I will, I will say maybe it won't be as interesting because a lot of it is, you know, meetings in, you know, offices and them just talking about how to figure stuff out. But um, for, for me, as somebody who likes to hear those kinds of things and hear them, you know, work through the creative process, I love that kind of thing. And you get to see uh, Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez um, talk about how they write songs and how, you know, their songs evolve and how, you know, difficult it can be to have the story side of the movie mix with the songs. Because even though the songs are meant to be part of the story, they still have to figure out how to make those songs mesh into the narrative and actually flesh it out and make sure that it connects with the audience. Um, and, you know, there's it extends on the stuff that you see in Featurettes, too. So you get to see a lot more of them working with uh, the cast. And uh, there's, there's even, like, uh, surprisingly emotional parts, too, where Kristen Bell talks about how one of the songs that Anna sings resonated with her, like, at a time when she was feeling particularly... Uh, depressed and it helped her like work through a lot of uh, issues that she was going on. And so it's just, it's this fantastic series that I was really surprised that I, uh, I liked so much because I was expecting it to be a little bit more fluffy, I guess. And there is still some of that there, but it's just such an in-depth documentary series that I, I really enjoyed it. I wasn't a huge fan of frozen Two, but I'm, I'm interested in seeing this because I'm just fascinated with the animation development and production process it's kind of a shame that they weren't able to be there from the beginning of like them developing the idea that would be i feel like cool to see well, so like, the difference i think i actually think it works better this way because the way they talk about it um i think it's even in the first episode is that at this point in production it's when the movie really starts to get challenging because all these balls that they've had in the air start to fall and they really have to get stuff like together and figure it out. Whereas I think the earlier part of production is a lot more um, just like brainstorming and figuring things out and like st stuff that would probably be less interesting than seeing it in its current iteration. Yeah. Uh, when does this, this hit uh, Disney plus this again? Friday, June 26th. Okay, cool. HT, what have you been watching? 
I've been watching The King of Staten Island, and um, I'm sorry to say, Chris, but this movie is good, actually. Um, I really enjoyed The King of Staten Island. I um, found it, I, I understand the critiques uh, for it to be overlong and meandering, but I think that that's sort of aimless style fits the aimlessness of Pete Davidson's character at the center. And I also found Pete Davidson to be, I think, the most endearing to me of the Judd Apatow um, man-children. Um, he, it also it has to do, too, with my inexplicable um, just uh, enjoyment of Pete Davidson as a as a performer and as a person. I I really I'm really charmed by his candor about his um, mental illness and his own sort of uh, you know struggles with his father dying um, during 9/11 attacks. And um, I I really liked how that uh, persona was um, represented in the King of Staten Island. And uh, I, I just I really just like liked hanging out with um with these characters for the two hours and 17 minutes that this film was and I just I, I felt like it was one of the more uh really affecting and genuine avatar films that I've seen and um in terms of like that sort of man-child arrest development type of formula that we've seen before with avatar I feel like the king of Staten Island uh evolves it in a way and um uh grows with it in terms of just like uh, it it is very much about that millennial experience, but I feel like it speaks more about just you know the stoner culture, and it talks more about how uh, it's difficult to um, sort of carve a path for oneself when you know that there's something wrong with you, but you still don't know how to get yourself out of that rut. And I feel like Pete Davidson um, uh, performs that really well in this film. I I just I really enjoyed him in this film. I really enjoyed the meandering aimlessness of it. And I liked the performances so much. I love Marissa Tomei. Uh, I love Bill Burr. And um, I just wanted to to spend time with these characters and really enjoy these characters' um, presence. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really, I think that this is, um, I really enjoyed this film a lot more than than like, um, than for Chris's review. But I, I just want to say that The King of Statland Island is good. And um, you should check it out, even if it is 20 bucks to rent on on VOD. So, so what you're saying is Chris is wrong? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What what else have you been watching? Um, what else have I been watching? I have been watch. I watched um, Eurovision Song Contest: The Story of Fire Saga, which I did not enjoy. Uh, despite a few people really liking this film, I just found it to be a really um, sim just tired retread of uh, satires that we've seen before. Uh, it felt there were a lot of shades of walk hard, the Dewey Cox story in this movie, but I didn't, I feel like the, the satire wasn't as sharp as that film. And the, the, the song contest that the movie is trying to spoof Eurovision, which is a really popular uh, annual song contest that's held in Europe every year. And um, is just, well known for being ludicrous and bombastic and high camp. Um, I feel like this, this movie comes from a very simplistic American perspective being, of being like, Oh, how, how crazy is this performance and not really adding any, any commentary or anything interesting to that other than just to display how bizarre this whole contest is. And um, I just felt like it was 
maybe like I'm, I'm just tired of dumb comedy nowadays and maybe I'm a curmudgeon, but I just didn't think that it was really that enjoyable. There were parts that were really funny and that made me chuckle. I really enjoyed Rachel McAdams who gets to show off her, her comedy chops again um, after game night and Dan Stevens gives a really campy performance that uh, and hammy performance that I really uh, liked. Will Ferrell kind of just cycles through his typical, um, you know, broad, dumb characters that he's done plenty of times before but um i i was just kind of disappointed i will say though that the songs in this movie are really great like this is uh on the higher upper echelons of satirical songs that are catchier and often and frequently better than actual pop songs and they're they're very funny too there is one song called i think yeah yeah ding dong that uh, comes up several times and is basically just one big dick joke but is very funny the, even the more they do it and um so yeah I just uh I, I can't say that I really I I like this movie a lot I I'm curious to see what other what Brad thinks about this movie once it comes out on Netflix this Friday but uh I just um I was not really impressed by it uh and um I do think that uh the uh, yeah, I, I think the performances were fine, but I just, I it felt, it felt very atonal too in terms of like tr- whether it was trying to be a spoof or whether it was trying to be a more sincere and loving tribute to Eurovision. And um, I just kind of couldn't really get my head around which one it was actually trying to be. So Eurovision Song Contest, not my favorite. Um, and I also watched uh, Volver which is a Pedro Almodovar 2006 movie. Um, I love every Pedro Almodovar movie that I've seen. Uh, Pain and Glory was one of my favorite movies last year. And I've seen a couple of his other movies. All About My Mother is one of my favorites. And I even like talk to her despite some of its more troubling aspects. And I had recently learned that Bolvera was streaming on Hulu and had heard so many good things about it and wanted to watch it for the first time. And um, as I was watching it, I actually got major deja vu and realized I had seen it before. <laughs> and uh, I, it's, I think it came out in 2006, so I realized I was, this was before I knew who Pedro Almodovar really was. But I remember enough of the plot beats where I was like, oh, I've seen this movie and I actually did like it the first time around. But watching it again really solidified like how much how great and how humanist of a director Pedro Almodovar is and how much I love his work and how much I love how he loves people. And especially women in this movie. Volver uh, stars uh, Penelope Cruz as a uh, single, as a mother who um, works and lives with Madrid with her husband and her teenage daughter. And um, her mother and father had died in a freak storm. And uh, it uh, and her aunt is sort of on the outs, and she's starting to worry whether her aunt will um, live or not. And there is this sort of strange wind that has come through. Um, the town and uh she says like in, that the people are suspecting is enchanting people and making them turn crazy so there's like this thread of magical realism through this film and um she, uh, for one time she one day she comes home and she finds her husband has been uh murdered by her daughter after he had tra- attempted to rape her daughter and uh she ends up having to um hide the body and um sort of everything's kind of unfold from there and despite it being a film that involves a murder and uh grief and um and themes of trauma it is actually a really buoyant and sweet film to watch uh and uh, i 
such a such a rich film that just like filled I think I've talked about Amador before how he fill, fills every frame with emotion and Volver feels even more so just because of how bright and candy colored it is and Penelope Cruz is just so so good in this film and uh, I realized after I had finished it that there are only I think about three male characters in this film and they only have I think a total of 10 lines throughout so it really is just about these women and living with these women in their lives and um the difficulties with the, within their own relationships and um, having to navigate those. And it's just, it's really, really brilliant and beautiful. And um, I recommend if you haven't seen a Pedro Almodovar movie, Volver is a perfect place to start because it, it just captures all of his um, sentiments and, uh, uh, in, and his um, sort of, and his uh, style. And that's streaming now on Hulu. So that's Volver. Um, I also watched a movie, an anime movie called A Whisker Away. This is directed by Mari Okada. It's a new Netflix original anime film. And um, it's actually a film, the original Japanese title is actually Wanting to Cry, I Pretend to Be a Cat, um, which which more accurately um, sums up the quirky wackiness of this film. It follows a young middle school girl who is known as the sort of class uh, eccentric. Um, And she is very bright and bubbly and weird, but she uses that as a mask to um, sort of get run away from her feelings about her parents' uh, separation and her dad's new girlfriend living with them. And uh, she also uses that her affection for this boy in her class as a mask as well. She just... um, points all of her obsession towards him and tries to use that to sort of uh, push down all of her other issues. And despite that, he doesn't acknowledge her. And uh, amidst all that, she stumbles upon a giant cat during a um, summer festival who is selling masks that can turn humans into cats. And so she buys one and uh, is able to turn into a cat that – the boy that she has a crush on instantly has a, has an affection for, and she starts to learn more about him in this cat form and um, tries to get closer to him uh, as a human through that sort of double life that she leads. But there is, there are stakes that there's, there are stakes to this in that like the more that time she spends as a cat, the more the cat the mask seller uh, starts to drain her life and she will essentially turn into a cat permanently if she doesn't want to keep her human life enough. So it's a, it's actually, there are a lot because of the sort of elements of this otherworldly um, plot and um, the, the things of the sort of element of the spirit world and everything like that. It, has some similarities to Spirited Away, which I think is where the title, the English title comes from. A Whisker Away is very similar to Spirited Away, which actually the Japanese title for Spirited Away is not that. It actually is called Sen to Chihiro, which um, is the, uh, which is basically describing how she changes her name um, or her changes her name from Chihiro to Sen. But um, what was I saying? Ah. This doesn't really have as many similarities as Spirited Away. It actually is more in line with other Ghibli works um, like 
Whisper of the Heart and The Cat Returns, which is the first is a more of like a sweet coming of age film that really has no supernatural elements. And the second is a thematic successor to that film and takes us into the fantasy world that the character of the first film dreams up. And it feels this film feels very much like a um, very influenced by those films. And um it's sweet, it's funny, it's silly, it's a little bit bonkers. Uh, I recommend it if you like Ghibli films that are a little bit more uh, magical and weird and funky um, than uh, you like a sweet coming-of-age uh, romance to uh, A Whisker Away that's streaming on Netflix. It um, sounds crazy. It is crazy, but it's really sweet. And uh, it's really beautifully animated, too. Um it is yeah, I was like, going to say, I'm looking at the images of it now, and it looks beautiful. It's gorgeous, yeah. I, I highly recommend it. I think, Peter, you would like it. I think, Ben, you'd like it. Um, Brad, you don't like anything Ghibli, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> to, be, to be fair, I haven't really seen more than a couple of Ghibli movies, and it's just my aversion to the style of anime. However, I have been considering giving a, giving Ghibli another chance, or Ghibli, however you say it, because now all the movies are on HBO Max, so maybe I'll give yes, them a shot. And- if you want to give them a shot, you should check out my handy-dandy streaming Ghibli guide on SlashFilm.com in which I give a nice rundown of every kind of film uh, that would be a good intro slash gateway to Ghibli. That sounds, that wait, sounds wait convenient a and informative. <laughs> HT, yes. you know Brad. You are co-workers. What film, if you had to recommend him one of the Ghibli films like to be like, this is the film that you're going to like, which one would it be? I, I, there are some good comedy ones that I, I think he would like, but they're also a little bit on the more bizarre side. So <laughs> like Tom Poco is one that's really funny, but it also contains uh, raccoons that turn, that can shapeshift through their balls. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> well, now I want to watch this. Yeah, I think you would enjoy it. Actually, I think you would enjoy that one the most, but um. You know, I think like a good beginner one is, for example, Castle in the Sky. Brad said he saw Princess Mononoke, didn't like it, and so I think he's a little crazy. But <laughs> Castle in the Sky, Palm Poco for Brad, uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, I think he would enjoy. So those, I think, try those out, Brad. Okay, okay, good to know. Okay, HD, what, what else have you been watching? More anime. <laughs> <laughs> so, this one actually came about to me through a recommendation from a friend, and I hadn't heard that it had come out, um, but uh, there's a bit of an explanation to this, so I'm going to give a little bit of background. Um, I'm watching a series called Dororo, uh, which uh, was released in 2019 and is on Amazon Prime. It's actually a 2019 remake of a, an, a manga by Osamu Tezuka. So the manga came out in uh, nine, the 1960s, and Osamu Tezuka is known as the godfather of manga and anime. He's the creator behind groundbreaking anime such as Astro Boy, the, basically the basis, the foundation of anime as we know it. And so um, Dororo is a uh, ronin series. It's set in uh, feudal Japan, and it follows a young ronin and a young urchin uh, during adventures in feudal Japan as they defeat uh, demons. So um, knowing what I'd known about Osamu Tezuka um, and kind of his more family-friendly style, which is actually more in line with early Disney, if you look at some of his early 
manga. It's very sweet and um, sort of uh, roundish and um, not and nothing too like uh, nothing too. It's, it's all very like appealing, like to a whole fa- family demographic. And um, so I was going into this anime kind of expecting something a little bit more like widely appealing. And I was quite surprised by how violent this was and how grotesque it gets. So Dororo um, follows a um, a young, the ronin in question, Hyakumaru, is uh, born... Uh, without skin, without limbs, without eyes, a nose, or ears. And uh, it is because his father had sold uh, his body, his son's body, to demons in order to um, get a, gain a blessing for his land and basically um, get uh, rain and um, r- recover from drought and uh, protect their land from invading uh, clans. And so this um, Hyakumaru is born without all of these features and his father and mother leave him to die. But the midwife takes pity on him and um, puts him in a boat down the river where he's saved by a man who makes prosthetics. And um, the man basically outfits him with prosthetics and raises him. And eventually Hyakumaru um, learns that once he defeats a demon, he will regain a part of his body back. But every time he regains a part of his body back, his father's domain starts to lose some of their blessing. So Hyakimaru goes throughout his journey um, now as a teenager, um, defeating demons throughout the land. And the title character in question, Dororo, is a young urchin who comes across him and um, befriends him and basically becomes his sort of sidekick and uh, his mouthpiece as well because Hyakimaru still has does not have the ability to speak or to see. He just kind of senses people through like a supernatural sense. And um, it is quite grotesque at the beginning. You see right off the bat the, the birth of Hyakimaru and his skinless, limbless baby infant body and it's really horrifying and there's just beheadings and um uh rampage and pillaging and everything and lots of decapitated limbs all over the place but it's a really uh compelling and fun series and I it's also my kind of catnip like I absolutely love any kind of ronin samurai series set in feudal times dealing with demons like add a big sword and you've got me hooked (laughs) And um, I, yeah, I, I'm really, I was really pleasantly surprised just to find out how intense and how uh, exciting this series was, despite being based off a, a really classic Osamu Tezuka um, manga. And uh, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it. And I, I absolutely love just like how fast paced it is, how, how stellar the, uh, the fight sequences are, are um, animated and how just like the whole look of it too. It is made very much to look like a modern anime and not in the style of, of Osamu Tezuka, although there are sort of some elements of the old uh, manga and the old, um, I think, 1960s anime that was originally an adaptation of it um, in the new series. So uh, that's Dororo, and that's on Amazon Prime. And, um, oh, more background for Osamu Tezuka. He's also the creator of Kimbo the White Lion, which was supposedly the, um, the well, the alleged 
inspiration for the Lion King. So it's also kind of funny that there's some debate whether Osama Tezuka was inspired by Disney in creating his um, art style and um, that being the, the basis for sort of anime as we know it. And it's kind of ironic that then his film, his anime, Kimbo the White Lion, would become the inspiration alleged of the Lion King. But anyways, that's sort of a fun little side note. And um, Dororo rocks. It's awesome. I love it. And that's streaming on Amazon Prime. Very cool. Okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, I've been talking recently about how I'm on a diet, and it, it's hard on a diet to find snacks that are low-calorie and stuff I can eat and not, like, uh, binge. Uh, I, I found recently in the chip aisle, especially chips, it's hard to find chips that you can, you can have. In the chip aisle, there's this thing called Ritz Crisp thins and these are not like rick ritz crackers they're like they almost look like chips i'm not even sure what they're made out of but uh for 21 chips it's 130 calories they're very good they come in like a bunch of different flavors i like the sour cream and onion uh there is like a tabasco there's a regular and there's um barbecue maybe something like that anyways i just want to recommend this if anybody's looking for a low calorie snack that actually tastes good uh ritz crisp thins brad what are you even eating i finally got my hands on uh the latest craze in potato chips uh there's a new baconator flavor of pringles uh baconator being the burger that you can get from Wendy's. It's like a double cheeseburger that has bacon and ketchup uh, and American cheese and mayo on it. And when I heard that they were putting the sandwich into a chip, I thought, man, that sounds like a really bad idea and I have to try it. And I did. And it is a mediocre idea at best. Um, I, it doesn't really taste like a baconator to me. It tastes vaguely like... They mix the bacon flavor Pringle with the cheeseburger flavored Pringle, and there's like a slight ketchup aftertaste to it. I don't know. It's it's it really feels like the, like they just combined a bunch of different seasonings from other flavors into to make this one chip. And um, yeah, I, it's just it doesn't really do do anything for me. I, I was hoping that it might be good, but maybe it's missing like a little of that of the cheese flavor, but. They're they're just kind of weird, and it's you can you can definitely taste like the artificial smokiness, I guess, that they probably put in to make it taste like a burger, and it's just meh. How often, Brad, are you like actually satisfied with these like themed like special edition foods? Uh, I would say maybe like I don't know, two out of five. <laughs> two out of five. <laughs> So forty percent of the time you're saying yeah, every, every, and that's that's why you try, you know, because you never know when you're gonna find a new chip or like, hey, this is really good. <laughs> but are you worried? Like, I I'm like this with you know Oreos. Every time there's a new Oreo flavor, I have to try it. But it feels like like why get excited for that? Like, if if it's good and it's something you love, it's probably never gonna get made again. So it it kind of like should we not even try them? Because then if we love it, like we only get to try it this like one season Sure, but there are instances where like sometimes they'll introduce some new new something new to the table and it's like a test to see if it'll become a new permanent flavor you know they've, they've done that with soft drinks a lot and every now and then they do it with uh chips or cookies um so at the end of the day too 
a lot of these snack foods usually last like a good year, year and a half after they're released. So if you really like, um, you know, a certain flavor, you can you can just grab like an extra pack and hold on to it until you're craving it again. Okay, what else have you been eating, Brad? Uh, I also tried a new root beer that I hadn't before. It's ever since I had that uh, surprisingly great root beer float at Arby's, I've just been craving root beer in general. Um, I think it's just because it's hot outside, and I like the idea of having a nice frosty root beer. Um, and I, when I was at the store, I saw this brand that I'd never had before, and I looked looked it up, and apparently it's uh, had very good reviews. That it's um, uh, a, just a, a good recipe, and so it's Henry uh, Weinhard's root beer. Um, even though that sounds like it might be like an alcoholic root beer, it's not, it's totally just a regular root beer. Um, and it's, uh, it's really, really good. Um, it comes in a glass bottle, which is the best way to drink root beer if you can't have it in a frosty mug. And, uh, it has just enough bite to it. Um, still has that, you know, that, that sweet flavor to it and that, that sarsaparilla kind of flavor. And, uh, it's not, it's not too hard of a bite. So it's, um, it's just it's it's a refreshing you know root beer. It's it's exactly what I was hoping for from from getting a, a six pack like this. And okay, what else? I got this uh, frozen pizza called uh, Mama Cozy's uh, Breakfast Pizza at Aldi, and so it's a pizza that has it, it. It seems like it's kind of a croissant crust in the same way like that DiGiorno pizza that we recently talked about not too long ago. And what it has on top of it is um, the sauce is country gravy, like biscuits and gravy. And it has little breakfast sausage crumbles and cheese. And it's fantastic. Um, I've seen breakfast pizza like this where they also put scrambled eggs on it. And this one, they didn't didn't have that um, in, in there. I imagine maybe it's harder to have frozen scrambled eggs on top of a pizza like that. But you can add it on if you want to. It even says in the box. But it's really good. The, the sausage is flavorful. The gravy is great as the sauce on it. And the crust was very crispy and flaky. So if you uh, if you live um, near an Aldi's, see if you can get your hands on it. It's um, I'm not sure how often they get it since Aldi's stock is kind of finicky and random at times. But it's uh, it's very good. Cool. Jacob, what have you been eating? Uh, more like drinking. Uh, this is less of me want to talk about what I've been what I've been drinking. More of a question for the group, which is: I tried Terramana tequila, the uh, new tequila that is heavily endorsed by one of his key investors, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And I will be <laughs> perfectly honest with all of you: I bought Terramana tequila because the Rock endorsed it, and because he pushes it constantly, and because it's like his baby. And if you ever on social media following the rock, you see him talking about Terramont tequila all the time. It has a really cool label and it looks really classy, uh, even though it's like a mid tier, you know, price wise tequila. And I bought it and it's good. It's a very good tequila. I'm not a tequila expert, but I've had my fair share. And this is a totally solid tequila, especially at, I think I paid $33 for the bottle. So here's my question for the group. Have you ever bought a product, a food, uh, uh, clothing, anything, because a celebrity endorsed it. Because The Rock is the only person who can get adult me to buy a tequila. I mean, with, with alcohol, I can answer this, but I'm not sure if it's because the person or because it was cool. But I've I've bought a Crystal uh, Skullhead vodka, which is from Dan Aykroyd, but that comes in like this this crystal skull, so it, it just like looks cool. So I think I would have bought it anyways, but I might not have known about it if it wasn't for Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, I feel like like so someone here has bought Air Jordan because I'm called Jordan. So, so someone has to back me up here that I, I'm not I'm not a crazy person for thinking. Oh, Dwayne Johnson endorses tequila, so I'm going to buy it. 
Well, this wasn't an endorsement, but I have dyed my hair because I've seen a K-pop star with that hair color and thought I could pull that off and then uh, subsequently could not pull it off. I haven't bought um, uh, alcohol based on a celebrity, but I did buy um, the Statesman bourbon whiskey from Old Forester because it was in Kingsman, the Golden Circle. I uh, I think you're all lying. I think I think Chris has like a David Lynch branded wine I'm, cellar. I'm or trying something. to think. I can't. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is no. Wait, that, doesn't David Lynch have like coffee or something? Yeah, but I've never actually gotten it. I, I I know I must have at one point, but I can't think of anything. <laughs> I mean, currently I'm doing I'm doing DDP yoga, which is uh, yoga by a wrestler named Diamond Dallas Page, and I'm guessing I probably wouldn't have done that if I didn't know who he was. All right, so I think the point I'm trying to make here is that celebrity endorsements are still still work for the most part. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Chairman Tequila, uh, I'm I'm gonna side with Dwayne Johnson here and say it's pretty good, or even very good. It's good. If you like tequila, you will like Terramon. You know what? I got one for you, Jacob. I right. used to think American Express as a credit card was like an old person's credit card. But then they started doing these commercials with like Wes Anderson and Martin Scorsese, and it totally wanted it got me to get an American Express credit card. There we go. This this is a story I needed. This is what I needed to hear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so wait, how is it? Is it is it just good? Oh yeah, it's good. It, it's like uh, for like I said, it's like a thirty dollar bottle, so it's not like the, the highest high end tequila, but it, it is a totally delicious tequila. I, and I I'm enjoying it very much. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing? I've been playing uh, two video games. One is an old game that just hits Nintendo Switch. I have it in my PC. I bought it a second time as much as I like it. And that is Invisible Ink. It is a really great uh, cyberpunk heist game where you play a uh, spy agency that's been decimated by evil corporations in the future. And you're on the run with limited resources. And you'd say a stealth game where you control your team of spies and agents like from overhead view as you navigate them through these various uh, facilities trying to steal equipment, steal money, and essentially prepare yourself to um, try to rebuild your, your company, essentially. And it's fantastic. I beat it on the PC, and it's really great on the Switch because it's a much a run-based game where the game itself is only about five to six hours long, uh, but each level is randomly generated. The stuff you have and can acquire is always completely different. Uh, you unlock more agents to make to change your lineup and, and all different abilities. So each time you play the five, six-hour game, which is like, you know, maybe four or five levels, you get a completely different experience. So the idea that like not being not having to be planted on a PC uh, like I've been before and be able to like pick it up in my switch and like play a level or like play a run and just put it back down. Uh, it's fantastic. And there, there are points in the UI where I wish I sold a mouse, uh, but otherwise the switch implementation is really strong in the game. Uh, has a really good art style. The, the, uh, the game designers emphasize more of the art and the, um, the, the design uh, of the characters more than like real realism. Does, does, it, looks, it looks like a comic book. It has like a very hand-drawn look to it. So that means it, it translates really well to the Switch and it's not like, you know, chugging on it. It actually is flying for the most part really well. Some, some occasional slowdown in later levels, but uh, it's one of the most satisfying games I played five years ago and it holds up great now on the Switch. It's, it's 19.99, and that's Invisible Ink. That's I-N-C as an in Invisible Incorporated. It's, it's a pun. Uh, I also played... Um, the Dark Pictures Anthology, Man of Medan. And this is an interesting thing because uh, Supermassive Games, who made this, made a game about five years ago called uh, Until Dawn, 
which was a narrative-based a horror game where you played as a group of teenagers or young adults who are at a cabin in the woods and it becomes like a slasher movie, a monster in the woods movie. It becomes a big horror movie. And you have, you had very, very strong control over the characters. You um, had to make choices like who do they like? Who do they hate? Um, what are they going to do in the situation? Are they going to go through this, go hide in the closet or run outside the house? Uh, and you had to, you know, do like button presses to like survive fights or leap over, you know, chasms. And it was really exciting. And, and, it was like a 12 to 15 hour long game. But what Supermassive Games learned was that people liked playing Until Dawn as a group. They like handing off the controller, you know, like, oh, I'm going to play a so-and-so and you play a so-and-so or let's all play together as a group. Like it's a big horror movie and, and like just like make choices together. I mean, that's, that's how I played Until Dawn. I played, I played twice that way uh, with different groups and got completely different stories where people, you know, lived and died in different ways. Uh, so Dark Picture Anthology uh, is their new initiative where like on a yearly basis, they plan to release a new game it's like until dawn in that you know, you're essentially controlling a horror movie and it's shaping the narrative uh but instead of being 15 hours it is we played this one in maybe five to six hours there's meant to be a game that we played either solo or with a group in one session and we ended up playing in, in two sessions but uh it even have they even have multiplayer mode where you can hand off the controller and it's built into the gameplay it's really built to be like a full-on group experience now which is great and uh, Man of Medan, I don't want to say much about the plot. It's $30. It's available on all the main consoles except for Switch. It's a little bit graphic. It's, it's graphic intensive. Uh, it, it's, so you need a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One or a PC to play it. Uh, but the basic gist is uh, there is a host character, the curator, who's essentially like a Rod Serling type, who, welcome to the Dark Pictures Anthology, introduces the story, and occasionally pops in to like judge you for your choices and like provide context. And you see him observing like scenes throughout the game in a really creepy way. And the game itself is very fun. And actually, it's interesting. It stars Sean Ashmore, uh, the actor uh, who's playing a young version of himself. Because even though he's in his 40s now, he's essentially playing a character as he would have like maybe 20 years ago. And, his, and similarly, how uh, a pre-fame Rami Malek was a star of uh, their previous game, uh, Until Dawn. And Will Poulter is the star of the next Dark Picture Anthology, which is set to come out later this year. So they, they really seem to be you know finding you know recognizable or really good actors to lead these horror stories and which are co-written by Larry Fessenden, who uh, is one of the like Kings of like weird cult horror cinema. So in a weird way, it's like Larry Fessenden's being able to write these like blockbuster size stories that have like $150 million movie budgets, uh, but they're video games where you're being able to like, you know, play through the story. And I find it in like doing a little bit of research about man of Medan. I really appreciate that since the game is shorter, they're able to create more options. Like the character who was the hero in my story, who was involved in the final battle, more or less, who emerges like the hero protagonist, can die an hour into the game if you make the wrong choices. Like the game becomes completely different based on like the decisions you make, and it's really really fun. A terrible theme song, by the way. Like the opening credits have the worst theme song I've ever heard. The most try hard bullshit. But we get past that. And um, I'm really excited about Dark, Dark Pictures Anthology going forward. And I plan to buy every one of these because they're so much fun. How's the replayability of, on something like that? Uh, like I said, I played Until Dawn, the, the previous game, uh, twice. But it was a much longer game. And just Googling around, and I don't want to spoil myself too much because I, I fully plan to fan, plan to play uh, Man of Medan again when I can, can I group with me so I can watch it be different. Uh, even though the same, there may be the same overarching structure of like, characters are in this location then this location but who is there who's alive who's active who's a who's like who's in the lead uh who is 
uh, you know, the heroic character who is like the, the shitty character, you know, it, it, it can all be completely different. Like just looking at like a little tree of options proved that like, oh, the game I got was completely different from the game you someone else will get. That sounds really cool, actually. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that does it for today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter, Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Friday. Uh, Peter, you can't escape. I have the gargantuan book of insult, defense, and affrontery. Sharp for post, cost equips, imply put downs by Louis A. Safian, right in front of me. And no matter what you say, I'm going to read from page 385 from the tight wads section. <clears throat> One of these days, I'm going to hit the the hang up button before you get you get the chance, Jacob. You know, Peter, I don't read this for the for the for the, for the listeners. I read this for us. Even if you stop recording, it gets read. So you <laughs> might as well let it record. Uh. Okay. All right. From the tight wads section. Tight wads. <clears throat> ben, he can make a nickel go f- so far, the buffalo gets sore feet. All right. Peter, when he takes a dollar bill out of his pocket, George Washington blinks at the light. Wait, wait. Is there a buffalo on a nickel? There used to be back in like the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, HT, it's reached a point where she won't even spend the time of day. Ah, you know what? Good. (laughs) Uh, Brad, at his own cocktail parties, the whiskey flows like glue. Yeah, it's my whiskey. Don't drink it. And Chris, the way he nurses a drink, it looks like he's drinking from an hourglass. Hmm. Why did these turn into drinking? I thought it was like money for a minute is, I, I feel like each, each section like has a larger theme then you, you grab a certain chunk and they're all about the same thing like there's a whole section of like drinking ones here and i didn't realize that when i started reading them uh but also you have a you have you even have an, a burglar alarm on your garbage can that's how tight what all of you are wow i mean Wait. i don't think that's really just t- I, I don't want anyone to take it in my trash cans those cost money <laughs> Well, Peter's girl asked him for a book of poetry, so he went to the bookstore and asked for a volume of free verse. I actually like that one. <laughs> Pretty funny, actually. <laughs> that that is that is good. That that is a joke worthy of like a sitcom. Oh, like someone to you, Louis A. Safian. God bless you. <laughs>